you know, the spatial organization of the United States is different than other countries and is unique, you know, and it goes, and it, part of the, part of the reason it is, is the way that we did zoning. And the other part is because we're a racist country and our housing and zoning policies were deeply racist. And, uh, so, you know, in terms of zoning is we divided functions of a city into three basic things. This is called Euclidean zoning. So there's, um, you know, residential, commercial, and, and industrial, right? So in our areas, it's more mixed use. So you're already dividing, dividing those, you know, by three, right? You're using your land, uh, ineffectively by dividing those uses. And then what we did with the residential pieces of that is we, we made a monumental commitment to single family home as the American ideal, right? So in, in many major cities in the United States, 70%, over 75%, 75% and over of the residential land is committed to single family homes. We've talked a ton on the podcast about the pitfalls of the education system, expensive, excessive, rote memorization, and anything but interesting or effective. That's why I'm excited to tell you guys about our partnership with Brilliant.org. Whether you're a hobbyist or a hardcore pro, into programming Python, learning algebra, exploring quantum computing, neural networks, or just want to improve your logic like me and be the next Sherlock, Brilliant's the place to go to uplevel yourself in science, math, computer science, and have fun in the process. Yes, it's actually fun. One of my goals with this podcast is to inspire more folks to pursue their dreams and passions to build a better world for all of us. I can't think of a better way to do that than by helping you guys, helping more people learn the skills, the tricks of the trade to accomplish incredible things. That's arguably the entirety of Brilliant's mission. To support the podcast and learn more about Brilliant, go to brilliant.org disruptors and sign up for free. The first 200 people that go to that link will get 20% off the annual premium subscription. Again, that's brilliant.org disruptors. Support us by supporting them, and you know what? It'll be supporting yourself in the process. You can learn a ton, have some fun, and just maybe learn the skills you need to do something incredible. As you can probably tell, I'm pretty big on health, longevity, and human optimization. That's why I'm pumped to tell you about our special 10% off offer from Onnit, the brainchild of UFC's Joe Rogan and Aubrey Marcus for elite performers. They're running a Willy Wonka style prize giveaway where everybody gets a golden ticket. Everybody wins on every order of Alpha Brain, a super nootropic stack that they sent me. I love it with my morning coffee and it comes with the potential to win an all expenses paid grand prize round trip for two to Onnit's hardcore headquarters in Austin, Texas, $1,000 store credit, $500 cash and more. Plus again, every bottle of Alpha Brain comes with a special bonus from the Onnit team. Just visit disruptors.fm alpha to save 10% off alpha brain or anything else from their awesome store. Again, disruptors.fm slash on it. If you want hardcore subs to live a high performance life. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the cash app, the debit card from square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide. Every time, no strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the cash app and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. Welcome to the disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. 
hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Peer-to-peer is the hottest trend these days. Having the customers, the users build it and love it, that is the way to go. And the guy who's designing the systems behind that, Neil Gorenflow. He's the co-founder of Shareable, the award-winning news, action, and connection hub for grassroots sharing. He's worked with a handful of successful dot-com sharing companies, organized the Abundance League's monthly salons in San Francisco for five years, and been featured on the Today Show, NBC Nightly News, CBS, Wired, and spoken at South by Southwest. He's the co-author of Share or Die and Policies for Shareable Cities. He helps companies and NGOs and organizations unite to build cities that are better for humans and more livable for all of them. Today, we discuss how U.S. zoning policies have institutionalized racism, what participatory budgeting can do for revitalizing civic life, why the capitalism experiment of free markets failed, why blockchain isn't the answer to our solutions, how we really should be rethinking cities and urban planning, and why Airbnb and Uber aren't sharing companies at all. Speaking of sharing, share this around with a friend. That's the biggest thing you can do for us is to help us build our movement of disruptors. We've got you guys, we've got people out there who really have the ability to change the world. But to do that, we need a team. If you've got a dream and it doesn't require a team, you've got to be thinking bigger. And we're thinking bigger, you're thinking bigger. Help us do that. Share this around. Help us grow our team. Thank you. Really appreciate it, guys. And now without further ado, I give you Neil Gorenflow. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So you did a you did a great job. I was listening to one of your talks recently, and I wanted to start it from there of building okay. off of the World Fair. Why was the World Fair transformational? Take me back to that. Well, I gave this talk at the We Share Fest. It's been a while, and I talked about I think it was the nineteen thirty seven or nineteen thirty nine World's Fair, and you know this was a incredibly successful public relations event put on by put on by corporate America basically million tens of millions of people came to it it was a, a enormous scale and it was an immersive experience for those who attended that they got a taste for the a future which corporate America was imagining for America um, that of course, deeply kind of involved them, right? So this was a kind of uh, a future where private industry shaped everyday life. Uh, and, and uh, you know, and I think it uh, set the stage for um, the post-war American dream, uh, a, a one of, you know, a kind of suburban civilization with, with you know, very high consumption and and uh, with a, a lot of social and environmental problems that, you know, cropped up later. And, and you know, the, the reason why I brought it up is, is uh, because um, I feel like, I feel like a, a similar kind of dream has been promoted by the tech, tech sector. And it could be a similarly and seems to more and more be uh, a kind of false dream with a lot of problems. You know, and, and as I reflect also on it, you know, it's now... You know, a few years later, that it's also a lesson uh, for the for movement builders, uh, which is, you know, if you want to build a future, a new future, or something different, uh, more sustainable and fair, is that you have to give people a really good taste for it. That that you have to do something of similar importance and magnitude as uh, what corporate America did during the '39 World's Fair. 
Um, it give that kind of immersive experience and, uh, you know, ideally that they walk away transformed, that they see themselves in the world in a different way and see uh, the possibilities. Um, and uh, a commitment is born, at least some of the people who participate in whatever it is you, you create to work towards it. You know, I, I just watched a, a documentary about Woodstock, um, and that was a, a, I think, a similar uh, kind of um, moment in history uh, where a large group of people, it was like 400,000 people, they didn't, couldn't get a, an accurate, accurate count, but that's the size of a, a small to medium-sized city who lived together without violence uh, through uh, and got through the three days uh, because they cooperated and helped one another. Uh, the, the conference organizers were ill-prepared, but the one thing that they did do is set the expectation um, that this would be peaceful, fun, uh, uh, and um, that we would, that we're all together in it and that to get through it, um, you know, we're going to have to work together and share resources. So, so uh, yeah, just, you know, just a few thoughts about that. Yeah, no one gets too excited about a half-assed utopia or a half-assed dystopia. You kind of got to go for it if you're going for it, right? Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think that movement builders need to get uh, much bolder and that these, you know, some of the campaigns that we see, uh, they're too one-dimensional, you know, and they don't involve enough. Uh, for example? Um, you know, you know, like they should have, uh, there should, you know, art and music should be involved, for, for instance, right? And it shouldn't only be, it shouldn't only be about what not to do, like stop global warming. It's like, what is the, what does the world feel like? And what is the world like? What is it shaped like a world that, you know, gets us, helps us make progress to, you know, towards some of the, you know, sustainable development goals and, uh, you know, mitigating the effects of, of climate change. So there has to be a lot more yes in the solutions than no, and a lot more joy and connection and fun and, you know, and also uh, meeting people's practical needs at the same time. So I'll volley that question right back to you. How? Well, you know, in, in our, our in, in our space, there there is uh, you know, a couple of couple of thoughts on that. Um, first, in our space, is this idea of dual power, which is you uh, you know the first part of it is that you build the world that you want to live in and uh, an economy based on solidarity, like that's a big start. You know, cooperatives, etc. Right, and you share resources, and and so that's you know it becomes a kind of home base where needs are getting met. But then the, uh, the second part of dual power is to engage with, uh, engage with the political system and, you know, fight, defend, and also make progress towards your, your vision, right? So there's a, this idea of dual power, um, which I think is a very powerful one and um, because it speaks to not only people's everyday life and needs, but also their longer-term, you know, aspirations. Um, and it's, it's very, I think, practical also. And then the other, the other thing uh, that I've been thinking about is, is uh, you know, inspired by some of the things we write about uh, and report on um, at Shareable. And there's particularly, there's this, there's this project in, in the UK called Participatory City. And, you know, they've like kind of cracked a code on how to get people to participate in civic life. You know, they really thought about how to remove the barriers and, and, uh, and invite people in to make their communities better, you know, in, in ways that they uh, want to, you know, a lot of uh, people hatching their own projects and their own ideas and being part of a kind of platform with the ideas like, 
uh, and that's their slogan is everyone every day. And, you know, I would only add like everyone every day, everywhere. Like if you're talking about a local community is that, that your vision is embodied in events and experiences over a long period of time, but, but, you know, uh, on an everyday basis and that involve everyone. And there are many expressions of, of, uh, this, you know, vision that, um, there's no avant-garde. It, uh, everyone is involved. So, you know, and that, you know, and I see it as a part of a layer that gets really ignored. You know, you have to have, uh, you know, values and a vision and a mission and you need, you know, policies and new services and new economy and new infrastructure. But at just below that level of culture, which is the top, everything rolls down from culture, right? Is programming. You have to program the culture, right? And, you know, the same way that uh, corporate America programs our culture with advertising, you know, movements need to program the culture for change and, uh, um, and, but not do it through advertising, which is impersonal and, you know, kind of mass produced and uh, often insulting or uh, provocative or it's designed know, to make you feel like shit. Great. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's kind of downgrades our us as humans rather upgrades. This is, this is more uh, about getting people out of their homes, off their screens, in the streets, with each other, creating the place and the, uh, and the world that they want locally. You know, uh, one of the paradoxes of the, of, uh, when you're thinking about social change and, uh, is that people's attention seems to be directed, uh, towards things like national elections where they have the least influence, where, uh, they might be better. We all might be better off. We put a bigger balance of our attention and energies where we have the most influence, which is with our neighbors and our neighborhoods, um, in our cities and towns. Why do you think the attention is that dichotomy where it is going? And at least your idea is the wrong way. I wouldn't say it's the wrong way. I'm sure, I, you know, I think we the need less to. Less effective way in terms it, of how much effort for it, impact. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I see, you know, we live in a global world and there's multiple scales to take action in your personal life and family, neighborhood, you know, all the way to the global scale. And as a global citizen, you need to think about where to distribute your attention and energies across that, across that scale. Um, and I just think that the local level is really ignored and more attention and energy should be put there. And, and, uh, you know, I think it has to do with our media system. Um, why we, uh, why we do that, uh, um, you know, the, the, and, and our, also our culture, you know, we've, we've, uh, marginalized civic life, you know, civics, you know, it sounds like so boring and it's, and it's also made boring, but, um, and I think we can reverse that. I think we can make, um, we can make civic life the thing that you sh that can't be missed, you know, just think of, of, of uh, you know, combining some of the best festivals that you, you know, we see in the world, you know, from Burning Man to, you know, festival in, in, and, uh, in Brazil and, and, uh, Mardi Gras and New Orleans, but combine that, uh, uh a civic uh, process, right? So it's both celebratory and practical where we're celebrating, but we're also working together to, uh, you know, develop agendas and take action to make our communities better and make our lives better. How does participatory? Uh, how does participatory budgeting play into that? Well, I think and it what plays is, a really and what is big participatory role. budgeting? Yeah, sure, sure. So participatory budgeting, and you know, it's a really simple concept: is that the taxes that you, you as neighbors decide together how taxes 
either all or a portion, usually it's a portion, it's just a portion, um, are spent where you live. So, you you know, you and your neighbors know best what your neighborhood needs. And so then you work with the city through a budget, a participatory budgeting process to propose projects, and then they get funded. And then all, and sometimes, you know, neighbors also participate in the execution of, um, you know, the projects and the neighborhood. So, so this is, you know, kind of direct democracy, you know, people get to decide how their tax dollars are spent in their local area. So it's really cool and something that's spreading around the world. There are thousands of cities now that do it. It's, you know, starting to take off in the United States, though it's a little slower going. There's more more places outside the United States that do it. Um, Why do you think that is? And you know, is it just red tape? Um, um, you know, good good question. I mean, I I, I think it, it's a combination of that that just low awareness about it, and that once you get it established and working in some and in some places in the United States, that you know. That's how things change in government usually is like somewhere, someone somewhere else does it successfully and it's, you know, and it really does work. And then they'll go like, okay, it works there. It can work here. And so you just need to kind of reach a critical mass. And the other thing is, I just think that again, you know, we've marginalized uh, civic, civic life. It's, it's something, you know, it's not the focal point of our, our lives at all. It's a marginal thing. Is it because we live in suburbs and we try to separate ourselves? We live in suburbs, but I think, you know, I would, uh, you know, go a step earlier is that what we've done, I think, especially over the last 30 or so years with the influence of the conservative revolution is we've created what, what uh, some sociologists call a market society. So there's, there, there is an economic, you know, a kind of economic phenomenon called the market, right? Where people buy and sell goods and, you know, the law of supply and demand rules, right? That's one thing. A market society is where you take the values of the marketplace and you redefine society and how we interact with each other uh, based on, on those values. And that's what I think is really corrosive and has undermined what I, what I think is the most, one of the most valuable assets that our country has, which is this uh, history of of civic life, of a civic culture. I believe that a civic culture is, and others would agree, that it is actually the basis for for wealth. So I think ironically that in our pursuit of uh, economic success, we may have we may have killed the goose that lays the golden eggs. Like that, our civic uh, our civic life, our civic culture is is that goose. And I would at least add to that, if not economic, then certainly quality of life. Because if you look at a comparison between Europe and the US, it's it's no comparison. So you've talked before about the great capitalist experiment. Tell me what you mean. Well, I think in the, la- the last 30 years, we, you know, we've kind of run, or at least, you know, maybe especially the last 30 years, you know, really doubled down on this idea of, you know, a free market and, you know, small government and... You know, and I, but I think the the results, you know, the results are kind of in from that experiment that it's, you know, deeply flawed and causes a lot of suffering, uh, environmental damage, and that you know we really need a new vision for the country. Uh, that 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 hasn't worked. It's been tried. It hasn't worked. Go into so, those stats you know, because a lot of people don't know or don't believe. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, now you're probably going back to that talk I gave at We Share Fest, you know, where I mentioned the, the 39 World's Fair, but you know, you have to look at how the United States is ranked on a lot of social indicators in the, you know, in the, um, especially when compared to 
other developed nations, uh, quote unquote, developed nations. And we're, you know, at the at the bottom and many important ones like like, uh, you know, healthcare and pollution and how we treat women. And, you know, I, I could go on. There's like a long list I give in that in that talk. So so, you know, you just had to see how we're ranked on those social indicators. And, and I think that's one. Um, I think it makes, you know, it makes a really strong argument that like, okay, we're on the wrong track. You know, we may be extremely wealthy and they have this big uh, GDP, but, you know, we're throwing this, our society under the bus to get there. So we need to, you know, rethink things. Speaking of throwing the society under the bus, we're headed towards driverless and we got tons of gig workers. What do you predict for our future? <laughs> what do I predict for our future? Uh, wow, that's a big one. Thanks, Matt. You know, just you know, land that's that on me. That's cool. <laughs> right. You know, first, I first the, the the you know this is kind of like my standard thing I say when people ask me to predict is which which is like I you know I think our jobs aren't to predict but to make what we want right is is to think about the kind of people we want to be the kind of relationships we want to have the kind of society we want and work backwards from that to make that happen right so so uh, instead of looking looking forward what we might do. Also, or instead, is look deeply, in, deeply inside and reflect on those things, and then think about you know, you know, the actions to take. But to you know, to to answer your question a little bit, a little bit more directly, and I say more directly because uh, I'm like one of those people that often stays on message or you know, and or changes the question. But but uh, you know, I'm I'm um, I'm you know, I'm not bullish on self-driving cars. I don't think that is a very productive direction. I think that the, our, our car civilization was a mistake and a misstep and that just extending it with like a newer, shinier, better cars is like kind Can of we stupid. we fix it without scrapping uh, the US though? Just the way it's structurally built? You know, I think it's very hard because we, you know, we've invested a ton of resources and a lot of our country is already built. So we have this, you know, sprawling infrastructure, you know, it's, uh, um, you know, one of the things we did was, you know, the spatial organization of the United States is different than other countries and is unique, you know, and it go and it part of the part of the reason it is is the way that we did zoning. And the other part is because we're a racist country and our housing and zoning policies were deeply racist. And uh so, you know, in terms of zoning, is we divided functions of a city into three basic things. This is called Euclidean zoning. So there's um, you know, residential, commercial, and and industrial, right? So in other areas, it's more mixed use. So you're already dividing, dividing those, you know, by three, right? You're using your land, uh, ineffectively by dividing those uses. And then what we did with the residential pieces of that is we, we made a monumental commitment to a single family home as the American ideal, right? So in, in many major cities in the United States, 70%, over 75, 75% and over of the, residential land is committed to single family homes. So, so, uh, that, that is, is that racism or consumerism um, though. If you can sell something for more expensive. Both. Yeah. It's, it's, it's actually both. It's actually both. We, you know, and there's a long history to this. The, the short story is that it was unconstitutional to do zoning based on racism. So they created single family zoning, which made it unaffordable for, you know, uh, working class and poor people and people of color and immigrants to buy homes in those areas. So it was, a, it was a kind of shadow racist zoning policy or, you know, crypto sort of, you know, uh, on the surface, not racist, but in practice, deeply racist, right? And 
Um, and the other reason why we double, you know, committed to single family homes is because it stoked our economy. That it was good for consumption. That you know, everyone had to fill their home up with all kinds of appliances and goods and furniture, and you know, everyone had to have a car. You know. And, you, you know, you have a single family home, it's expensive, so you can have a 30-year mortgage. This is a way to secure your labor market and your, your workers and control your workers, right? They, you know, you got to stick to the job. you got a 30-year note, right? So, um, you know, this was part of the, the their antecedents, but this was part of the, the you know, the post-war period. This, this idea really came uh, to fruition, right? And now we're kind of experiencing the hangover of it and starting to rethink it. Uh, Minneapolis just at the end of last year banned single family uh, detached units. Yeah, and it's starting to, in the Pacific Northwest, they're starting to think about that also. And you have, I think it's SB 50 in California, which didn't make it through, but was a similar effort. And, you know, the, the idea is to uh, upzone the single family areas so you can put more housing on these lots and, and, you know, in, in areas zone single family, you can't have multifamily units. You can't have dupl- uh, duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, and small apartment buildings. Only single family homes, right? So in the United States, we use a, an incredible amount of land for single family homes, and it's a very obviously a very inefficient way to house our population. Um, it creates all the sprawl and all the attendant problems of sprawl, uh, traffic jams, high cost, high infrastructure costs, etc. Social isolation and and uh, um, so that's you know we're starting to really rethink that as the housing crisis really builds and and you know people just you know just uh, the the household budget just doesn't add up. It's, people just can't afford the high housing costs. Will build will building and, you know, be enough though? That would only wouldn't that only imply it would be enough if the population just keeps growing? Otherwise, you kind of have or are you going to have empty houses? Apparently, apparently, God, we have six empty houses for every homeless person in the U.S. That in alone is a mind-blowing stat. Right. So, so I mean, one, you know, you know, one one approach is, and it was kind of a precursor to banning single-family homes, and also is really picking up speed as a trend is this um, is ADU accessory dwelling units, the ability to put additional housing on a single-family plot, right? So have a a, you know a mother-in-law or granny flat, you know, in the in the basement. Um, or put a like a tiny home in the backyard, um, or redo your garage uh, and make it a, a, a living unit. So you know you take all of those houses and a good uh, you know high percentage or maybe a majority of them, they, you would be able to put at least one or two units on. So we can get you know we can grow housing quickly that way um, if there is more institutional support and it's streamlined more. You know it's it's started very slowly back in two, uh, 2016. Mostly like the, the movement for ADUs, it's picked up steam. You know, some jurisdictions have streamlined it. Um, and now, you know, we've gone from a trickle of like, ap- you know, applications to put in ADUs to, uh, you know, in California, particularly to thousands. And it, you know, it can, I think it can pick up additional speed when there's more prefab housing and financing available. So you can really just kind of pump it, pump out the housing supply using that strategy. It's not, it's not the, the, the solution, but it can be part of the solution. But then there's also the people that not in my backyard. They've been sold the vision of investing in your home is a good investment, which uh, it's probably not. But in terms of if we add more supply, we don't add more demand. Uh-huh. Suddenly these houses stop going up, start going down. We're already we're already on the brink of a, 
at least real estate recession. We're going to have a bit of a, a turn down. It didn't turn down enough and prices are higher than they were in 2008. How do we how do we handle that if suddenly people who are living, especially baby boomers, they're, they're probably going to have social security. The next generation certainly won't. Their value is tied up in their house, which would be going down now in value. Yeah. The, um, you know, it's, of course, it's a bubble and you know, bubbles pop. So uh, there, there may not be a graceful way to handle it. And, you know, that, you know, this is what happens when you point, you know, hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of dollars out of market and make the, that credit super cheap and easy to get at and make that asset, you know, a global commodity. But that's what, you know, housing has become in the United States, the global commodity, not, uh, not a service, not a method to, to, uh, you know, shelter people, but a global commodity. So, uh, I don't think there is an easy, painless way to de-escalate from that. So, uh, on the other hand, this this trend to upzone single-family areas could could be a windfall for homeowners. Their their land could you know could become more even more valuable and create even more uh, you know kind of wealth inequality because you know when you upzone, you're basically saying you can house more people on the same amount of land, and that makes the land more valuable. You know, in theory. So, so um, yeah, cause more problems. Yeah, which you know, there'll there'll be other there'll be other problems with that. Particularly, like I think the the problem is that those who have been left out of that wealth building process, you know, African Americans, people of color, you know, people who can't get credit for one reason or another, or don't have the the financial otherwise have the financial resources to buy a home, you know, they are left further behind, and you know, that's definitely not. Not fair, and I, I think particularly to, to African Americans because the, you know a lot of the policies have been you know specifically targeted to you know exclude them, and you know the, the, the that's the other side of the other side of this you know the zoning story that I told you to share briefly. It's just kind of sketch, really. Is is that while there was this post war boom in suburban America, which was part of the uh, very important part of the uh, wealth building process for middle or white middle class Americans. On the other hand, uh, blacks were not able to buy homes. So it's um, like inflation for everyone, but certain people have higher levels of inflation because they're not involved in the economy. Yeah. The, yeah. The, so, you know, basically when you segregate, I, I think of what we did as a kind of, uh, as the American apartheid, that we live in apartheid system, but we don't recognize it. We have a myth that that hides do you think it, it do you think it was intentional or do you think it was an accidental policy um oh it was it was it was definitely intentional but what makes it different from say the case of South Africa is that we had a myth that masked what was going on um you know the, the myth you know the American dream and the myth of like a level playing field that if you work hard every you know it, anyone can get ahead and uh, but underneath that uh, you had three levels levels of government that were doing things often not in coordination to create a segregated society, right? So, so it's really hard. It's really hard to see because it's, uh, you know, also it's it's a segregated society is against our constitution, right? But we did it anyway. We, you know, so there's a book on my in my bookshelf that I'm I'm going through now called The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. And this is like the main point of our book is uh, this book is that we purposely created segregation that the federal government was is implicated in it. Uh, they they were uh, and they and we we broke our own you know constitution to do it, and so therefore we're, the federal government is responsible to to fix and even re- repair do repar- rep- reparations for for the 
for that crime, basically. Let's play devil's advocate. When does that stop being the case? So how far back in time does it suddenly not make sense to have that argument? Because I feel like you could have that argument to time eternity. And if you're always looking backwards, it's hard to look forward. Yeah, um, you know, that's a great question. I'm not sure I'm like, to be honest, Matt, like perfectly equipped to, to answer that. The, but in the, uh, in the case of housing, this is recent. This is like in the last 50 years that a lot of this unfolded. So it isn't distant. And we live with the effects of it today, even though some of, if not most of the laws that created the system have been rolled back, we live with the effects today. And those who are most affected uh, affected are deeply impacted from it. So, so yeah, it's a great question. I don't have an answer, but I think, um, you know, just that's just a little bit of perspective. I'll give you a more fun question. Let's go rainbows and unicorns. I give you a magic wand. I give you a magic wand. How do you fix the problem? <laughs> Man, I tell you what, you know, one of the things why I'm, you know, I'm, you know, this is fresh on my mind because we are doing an editorial series about this very thing about housing in the United States and, you know, how to better share land and manage our, our and regulate land use. And, you know, we haven't finished it, so we haven't, like, researched all the solutions because that's, you know, that's part of what we do is solutions journalism. So definitely have to understand the problem, but we want to report on the, the solutions. And and uh, I, I honestly, that now that I'm right in the middle of it, but I haven't finished it, you know, I think this is a very difficult problem. I think it's, you know, that we set in motion, we made our investments and laid out the spatial organization of our society. And this is very, very difficult to change. But, you know, I, uh, and in the history, you know, I've done a timeline of this, which we'll publish on shareable.net. And what that timeline shows is that every turn in the housing market made it worse, uh, for, uh, those who've already been excluded and negatively impacted. And so, you know, what we see with SB 50 and upzoning could be the same story all over again. It's like an effort to change things and make things better, but just makes it worse for those who've already been excluded. So, you know, that's that's a way of saying that, you know, I'm not sure yet what the right way to do this is. Um, and, and I don't think anybody is sure. And if they think they know, I think I would, you know, I would. They're full of shit. You don't know what you don't know. I would. If you, yeah. If they think they know then and if they're sure, I, I would say I, w- I would suspect that they need to do a little bit more research, especially about the history. The definition of mastery is knowing that you don't know. Um, let's go into a little bit more happy topics. Talk to me about the sharing economy, where you see us <laughs> headed, pros and cons. Yeah, so um, the sharing economy, uh, um, you know, something of great promise that, you know, was, I think, distorted a lot by this influx of the like tidal wave of venture capital and became, you know, more business as usual, if not more aggressive and more exploitative than business as usual. The you know Airbnb and and Uber and Lyft being being the examples. But behind that though is a real sharing economy, and that's what we write about at um, at shareable.net. And and that real co- that real sharing economy is uh, embodied very strongly in a movement that we started called Sharing Cities. And um, this is back in 2011. We have this event called um, Share San Francisco. Um, where we first started thinking about sharing kind of meet, meet cities, the real sharing kind of meet cities. And, and if you think about it, you know, this makes sense. You know, a, a city is a shared enterprise. Um, the quality of life and the reason to be there, um, is because so much is shared. And, and, uh, with, 
over 50% of the world's population being in cities and being connected by the internet or by mobile phones, that the opportunity to share even more, you know, present, you know, was became kind of obvious and a opportunity for, uh, for big sh- positive shift, you know, if this movement is conceived and shaped correctly, you know, since then, uh, there are 100 plus cities that have sharing cities programs and um, some of the biggest cities in the world, including Seoul, South Korea, they have one of the most ambitious programs. Uh, there's a, a newer one in Sweden called Sharing City Sweden. And it's four cities in Sweden that are working together. Uh, one interesting facet of that uh, program is, is that they're starting to think not just of services, but of infrastructure. So as part of that program of that effort, they are building a sharing neighborhood for 2,000 people from scratch in a, in a neighborhood of uh, in Sege Park, a neighborhood of, of Malmo. And, you know, I think that's a really important advance, uh, uh, you know, and it really connects to what we were saying is like the suburbs are uh, a, you know, unsustainable, like spatial organization of a society, right? It's high cost, high consumption, a lot of social isolation, et cetera. Here, the thinking is completely different. How do we build a community from the bottom up that is green, that is community driven, uh, and when, where people share resources? And, you know, another I think important facet of sharing city Sweden is is that University of Lund is involved, and so there is a lot of planning and measurement that's going to be going along with this. Uh, so, so uh, and the, the four cities are part of a, a urban testbed program that the uh, national government funds and supports. So this uh, could feed directly into Sweden's plans for how uh, for their urban for urban development in general. So uh, I think this this really uh, points to the future. Contrast that with what Google's doing with sidewalk labs in Toronto, or you see happening in China. <laughs> it's kind of that, how, pros and cons, differences. One of them feels like it's building towards a minority report. Yeah, right. You know, the, the, you know, the, the internet was this incredibly promising thing. And, you know, I, I was... You know, drank the Kool Aid early on too, and thought this was a, a chance for um, you know transformation for our society. You know, to connect people and give them chances to work together and help each other. And you know, it's turned into a um, you know surveillance economy nightmare, and uh, you know, very exploitative and manipulative, and also I think psychologically and socially damaging in ways we are still grappling with. So you take. You take that experience and that template and you apply it to this smart cities concept, which that's what Google is doing in, uh, in Toronto. They want to build kind of the ultimate smart city. And I think the, uh, the dangers are, are, should be readily apparent, um, that you could have something equally as toxic and unrewarding and, you know, damaging to society as the, uh, as parts of the internet have become. And it's also building towards a similar, if it wants to be surveillance type system, similar to what China's doing, social credit, et cetera. It's hard to, it's hard to separate between those two. We had Charles Mann on the program a while back and he had a really cool book, The, The Wizard and the Prophet. And it's looking at how there's two different types of people when they look at how to improve the future. There's the wizard who's trying to build and create technology to make the future better. And there's the prophet who's looking back to the past in ways you can take those things into the future and build the future better. And they both have very conflicting views and generally speaking, can't come to terms with the other side. How do you view that balance of past and future when it comes to creating a better future? Because 
they don't they don't get along well, but they should be able to. Yeah, I mean the uh, I think I think that the you know in our book sharing cities activating the urban commons we kind of put our stake in the ground and you're a prophet. Well, perhaps, but you know, or tend in that way, but but uh, we we put our stake in the ground and said that the the political economy for sharing cities should be the earth should be the commons, right? So the urban commons, right? And, and the, you know, the, I think the urban commons may, or the commons in general, may combine both the wizard and the prophet together, right? And it's a way of, of honoring the past and preserving cultures that, that's there, but making a future together, right? And the, and the commons is, you know, a, it's basically like a democratic way to manage resources. And there are three components to a commons. So there, there is the, the shared asset, there's the, the users, and there's the democratic management process, the, the, the governance of um, how the community manages that resource, those three things, right? And, and you know, this is the turn that the Sharing Cities movement is making. You know, they, this is what we wanted to happen and, and you know, have ad- advocated for. Um, and Seoul is um, making, I think, the first move. They're having a conference in the fall, which I'll be attending, to, to talk specifically of, sharing cities and the urban commons. And this is a way of like uh, basically putting the future of the city in the hands of the people, you know, the, the people that live there and, um, and having them make the city, not, not, not experts like wizards or prophets and it's democratic so forth, social, but democratic ordinary people. socialism. Um, perhaps, I don't know if that's totally accurate way to put it, but it's close. It's close, Matt. Yeah, for sure. Is that the reason that it has had less traction in the U.S.? Because in the U.S. people seem to have uh, a cootie-like fear of socialism? Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's almost like a you know taboo, right? I mean, to talk about I, I mean they, talk, the they, they talk about at least as recent as the last election, just bringing up a politician as being socialist as enough to crucify them. So Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, we we have, I think, uh, on the, at least in the public and um, the mainstream media, a very unnuanced and you know immature, you know, kind of discussion about political economy. So, so this this doesn't surprise me. But you know, w- you know, I think there has been a very concerted, long term effort to marginalize all those ideas where people come together to make their lives better. You know, the, the collectivity. And instead, have emphasized uh, a society, political economy about private property, about individual rights and individual freedom and free markets. And uh, and that you know, there, as Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher said, you know, there is alternative to capitalism, and that that's how, how far I guess the granulation of collective ways of organizing resources gone. How much of the problem is, at least in my opinion, the U.S. government just being much less efficient in terms of real output for what you get for the money? For instance, Germany, their government is 44% of the GDP. The U.S., their government is 40% of the GDP. In Germany, I feel like you get a heck of a lot for your taxes. And I I don't know if you're living in the U.S., you're in Mountain View. I feel like you get a heck of a not a lot here. And that may just be my perspective, but... Even in Europe, people seem more willing to pay taxes because of the outputs they get from them. Well, yeah, I mean, we are a revolutionary country, you know, born out of revolutions. We have, a, uh, I think, an inborn suspicion of, um, you know, people ruling over us from distance, right? And uh, and so that, you know, the federal government being 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 part of that, being part of that, 
And I think that that that's healthy to an extent, but it's gone. Uh, I think it's gone too far in this country. And I think that certain political players and you know the Conservative Party has has really played on that and emphasized that. You know, I, I forget what politician, conservative politician, uh, who said this, but uh, he wanted to get the federal government to the size uh, to the size where it could be strangled in a bathtub. You know, could be drowned in or a bathtub. Republicans right? sell fear, Democrats sell hope. They're both selling something. Right. So, you know, I think we've got into this into the cycle where we underfund social programs or we cripple them in, in legislative ways so they don't work. And so that provides rationale then to cause things anymore, like we have done with, uh, with public housing, uh, which public housing is successful and uh, very successful in many other countries. Like, they just, uh, you know, I've traveled all across Europe and, you know, Germany and Austria and other places like public housing is uh, high quality, manual and and uh, often a very high percentage of the housing stock. Um, in the United States, if you look at the history of it, we did exactly that. We made, we passed laws to fund it, but then our programs were uh, were such that uh, that they were designed to fail, and the, and you know, conservatives were you know fixed it that way, right? And if there's this great documentary about Pruitt Igo, the housing uh, complex that you know, goes into great lengths about this. And it's very eye-opening. So I recommend anyone who has their doubts in, about public housing to look how it was, look at, at that example and, uh, you know, and understand that we just didn't do it right. It isn't that public housing is bad. It's just we didn't do it right. And the king of capitalism told us himself, Henry Ford, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. Blockchain and decentralization. Where do you see it headed and playing into this shared cities, shared world, shared spaces future? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure, but I'm skeptical about this idea that you can have, you know, a trustless systems. I, I think that that is, uh, that is besides the point where the opposite of what the point is, is you want to create a society where trust um, where you need to really build trust and you have old fashioned social networks face to face. And, you know, I think that, that is our, our past and future is building more social capital, creating uh, potential, uh, our ability to collaborate, to speak to one another, to band, to empathize, to create together. That's how we have become master of, uh, of the earth, this and that, of the earth. And that's how we'll matter the challenges that are before us is through, uh, through collaboration and large scale collaboration and that, I think that's a really good, like, uh, you know, definition of what humans, the, the, the essence of human beings and our, our key ability, um, that other species don't have is the ability to flexibly, flexibly, flexibly collaborate at scale, right? We need to focus on developing that talent. Yeah. Even with uh, 155 people that you can know in your network type deal? <laughs> it's a good term. I think you have systems that, that then add up, to, add up to scale. But you know what? I think we do need to live in, um, uh, in you know, human scale, human scale communities, which, you know, like 150 to 250 people, roughly, but that these can be connected into larger scale systems. Yeah, it's interesting how when you come at the problem from both sides, decentralization and blockchain is more or less a libertarian's dream. And you get to the flip side of things, which is decentralized 
government and sharing communities, which kind of come around to similar places from very different vantage points. It'd be interesting to see if we could merge those effectively in the future. Yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done to do that. And, uh, um, you know, it's another tool. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, you know, I, uh, you know, I believe in human beings and that's, I'm doubling down on us. Yeah. And if you, if you don't believe in human beings, we have, we have, we have another problem. You can go play for someone else's team. But, uh, See, Doug Rushkoff is a good. Yeah. He's got a yeah. great podcast. Yeah. If you're not playing yeah. for team human, are you rooting to lose? Right. Exactly. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm a team human. I'm with yeah. Doug. <laughs> Gotta love losing the game, right? Yeah. Yeah. I always find people that say things are inevitable. And I, I have that definitely in me. I have the realist, cynical side of things and I can feel it. And I try to channel the optimism where I can. But if you, like Henry Ford said, whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're probably right. <laughs> right. I, I, think that's a, I think that's a good place to start wrapping this up. Neil, before you tell people where to find you, I want one thing from you, a call, a call to action advice, anything, what would it be and why, or something to check out? What would it be and why? I, here's, you know, to listeners is, you know, you, you have challenges before you in your life. Like one, I would, I would start to explore the idea that some of the best solutions may be ones you create with your neighbors. And, and I would, you know, get our book, sharing these activating the urban limit, shareable.net. And it's available. They're free. You can download. It has lots of great ideas for how you can do that. And what I love about how you described shareable, you do journalism based solutions based journalism. So it's not, oh my God, the sky is falling and we start crying. You actually have something tangible there to give people hope. And I think that's the most important thing when you try to create a better future is to show people how it can be. Better. Yeah, exactly. It's not even just hope. To, it's also practical knowledge they use and create. If it bleeds, it leads. That's a sucky way to do it. Yeah. Thanks for coming on today. Where can people find you, Neil? Learn more. Uh, oh, I'm at, uh, you know, go to shareable.net for our website. I'm at, uh, also at shareable, S-H-A-R-E-A-B-L-E um, on Twitter. And we are uh, also at Bornflow, G-O-R-E-N-F-L-O. And thanks for tuning in, guys. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's Matt Ward IO. Turns out there's a ton of Matt Wards. And go to disruptors.fm, enter your email address, subscribe, so you get all the latest from the incredible guests we have on. Thanks for coming on today, Neil. Hey, thank you, Matt. It was a pleasure. And cheers, guys. Until next time, go make it happen and actually talk to someone. Peace. Be the change you want to see in the world. That's something I strive towards and fail towards every single day. If you enjoyed this podcast, if you think the world could benefit from conversations like this, the greatest compliment you can give us is referring to the disruptors to a friend or talking about us on social media. Please take 30 seconds to do so. It would mean the world to us. And if we're lucky, help us build towards a better world. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for helping us spread the message and have a great day. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 